Well, good morning. I want to thank you for joining us either in person or on live stream. It's great to have you here this morning. I'm going to have you stand as we go to the Lord in prayer. And uh, maybe you're here today and you have a need in your life. Maybe you're at home, you have a need in your life. We're just going to ask God to do powerful things today. Uh, some of us have already gotten up early. We've been praying together. We're believing for miracles. You know, my biggest prayer every Sunday is that we would have an encounter with the true and the living God. And I, I just think of Isaiah. Here was a man who was godly. He was in the temple, place of worship. And it said in the year that King Uzziah died, he said, I saw the Lord. And everything changed in his life. I mean, here was somebody that knew God, but boy, he experienced God in a totally profound way. And you know, today I'm believing for that. I'm asking God to have such a powerful sense of his presence, both at home and here, that your life will never be the same again. Anybody up for having God touch you in a special way? Having God do a cleansing work in your life? God doing a liberating work, setting captives free? How many here today, you have a need in your life and you're asking God to do something special, either for yourself or for those that uh, you're aware of that are in maybe your life. Somebody here, just raise your hand. Let's just lift our hands to God, lots of needs. Lord, I just thank you this morning. There are lives on the line. And we are praying right now, interceding for those that are afflicted in body, those that are troubled in heart and mind, those that are struggling spiritually, those that have been taken captive, oh God, and are living in blindness and are un unknown to you. Lord. They're known to you, but they don't know you, Lord. And I just pray right now that your spirit would move in answer to the cries of the hearts of your people, Lord. Lord, would you move supernaturally in every situation that our hearts and minds now are sending to you. We're, we're lifting up people's names. We're lifting up their, their needs before you this morning, believing that you're gonna transform their lives, Father, and that they will encounter you in a special way, a life-transforming manner. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. And I was working on this message this week, and a thought came to my mind, a story that I remembered a number of years ago. I was uh, in a meeting with some of my pastoral colleagues, a friend of mine, and uh, he and his wife went to Acapulco, Mexico for a vacation. That sounds like a really nice thing to do. Anyways, Jim and Doreen had arrived, and you know they had parked at the beach. Doreen grabbed her book. She sat down. She was going to enjoy reading, relaxing. And Jim's a very active guy. So he's racing off, gets into the water. He's going to body surf, right? And so he's having a great time. There's like five-foot waves crashing against him, and he's just having a blast. But then all of a sudden, he, he realizes a couple things. First of all, he notices no one's around him. And that secondly, the waves are actually taking him out little by little. But in his mind, he's going, no problem, I'm having a great time, I know how to swim. And so uh, he just keeps enjoying himself, but eventually he can't touch the bottom. He's gotten a little further out than he thought he needed to be. And now the waves are, instead of five foot waves, they're between six and eight feet. They're getting a little more exciting, a little more scary. And so he decides, no problem, I I'll start swimming back. But as he swam, he couldn't get anywhere. He, he was actually being taken further out into the ocean. And all of a sudden now he realizes he's in trouble. 
I mean, he's getting tired. And if you've ever been, you know, swimming after a while, you do, you know, and you're fighting against the current, the tide, the waves, everything else. And eventually, two thoughts come through his mind. The first one is, I'm going to die. And the second thought, equally terrifying, is my wife's going to kill me. This is, this, this is the first day of my vacation, and I'm going to die on her, and I'm going to ruin her vacation. He was really upset. So then he's panicking. You know, like that, there's that momentary moment. You start panicking a little bit, and he starts hollering. But then he remembers he hadn't seen anybody. You know, he was all by himself in the stretch of the beach. And so then he goes, you got to settle down here, Jim. And so he flipped on his back, and, and, uh, and eventually... A couple of things he had not noticed in his enthusiasm to get in the water were that there were these huge towers where lifeguards were posted. And fortunately, one of the lifeguards noticed that he was in trouble. And so he jumped, uh, took a surfboard and went out to him. And eventually he says, just about the time I was ready to just give it up, the lifeguard showed up on the surfboard. He said, I was so exhausted. I could barely get on the surfboard. The lifeguard had to help me to get on the surfboard. I couldn't do it on my own. I needed his assistance. And then I noticed he started taking us parallel to the beach. We were actually going lateral instead of back into the wave. And, uh, and, and eventually he said, we got to the beach. And of course the lifeguard said, hey, are you okay? And he said, yeah, I'm fine. He said, hey, listen, would you mind signing this book for us? This is a list of all of the people that we've rescued off the beach. He said, hey, listen, man, you just saved my life. I have no problem signing the book. He said, I opened up the book and I noticed a whole list of names there. And they also gave their ages because it said age. And he says, I noticed there was a whole bunch of people, dumb people like myself, about my age, on the list of people they had to rescue off this beach. And then finally he got back to uh, where his wife was, and for the first time he noticed these huge signs, 12 feet by 5 feet, 12 feet wide, 5 feet high, that said, warning, riptide. He had actually gone into the wrong part of the beach where it was a dangerous situation. He was ignoring the warning. And so, you know, when I thought about this, I had to phone him this week. I said, I want to make sure I get all the story right. And we were chatting. And uh, then he's, and I wanted to ask his permission. I just want to tell stories about people. But uh, then he said, as he was reflecting upon his experience, he shared with me this amazing thought. He says, you know, as believers, we often do the same thing. We ignore God's warnings from his word and we think, hey, I can handle this. I can have a little bit of enjoyment, but how many recognize sin has a power to destroy us? And you know, we think, well, I can just handle a little bit of it, but when we start disobeying God's word, the power of sin starts to seize control over our lives unless we come to the realization that we're actually in trouble and we need help. We can easily drown in our sin. Now, living in this earthly life or this world has always posed great dangers to us as believers. The Christian life is like swimming against the tide. One of the dangers is the very strong tide or current that flows against the purposes and the will of God. And we're going to constantly be battling this in our lives. Strong tides are designed to pull us out and then down. 
They're always designed to do that way, and especially, you know, in a riptide. You know, there's, that's when there's two converging tides. The tide's coming back and forth, but these are bumping up against each other and creating a highly dangerous situation. And we need to be able to identify the threats in our life. And you know, when you're in a riptide, the best thing to do is not try to swim against it. You're not going to do it. You have to swim parallel or lateral. That's why the lifeguard did that, to get him out of the riptide in order to bring him back to the beach. In the first three chapters of 1 Peter, we've seen a consistent call to live a holy life and to be prepared to suffer injustices and hostilities as believers. We're going to see more of that as we're moving through the letter. Peter's been talking about Christ's suffering as examples for us, that we need to understand that in this life, there's going to be some great challenges, and Jesus experienced them, and you and I need to understand that we also uh, we'll experience these in our lives as well. Now, Howard Marshall points out, a person who suffers shows that he or she has given up on those things against which their suffering is a protest. In other words, by suffering, Christ showed his opposition to sinful living. How many know that? That's true. I mean, he suffered in order so that you and I could be free from sin. So we need to understand that, uh, you know, sometimes we look at suffering as a negative thing, but as we're about to see, sometimes there, it's the tool that helps you and I understand some very significant things about life. Uh, in other words, uh, persecuted Christians need to follow Christ's example and say a firm no to their temptations. We're going to just look at... Uh, the first six verses today. I was going to do 11 verses, and then I decided, you know, I'm having a harder time finishing my sermon, so I'm going to cut it in half, and I thought, good, this will be easy, and then I realized, it's still a long sermon. How do I do this? You know, just six verses. But let's take a look at the first six verses of 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to find two keys to swimming against the tide, and the first one is simply our commitment to the gospel. So what does it really mean to be devoted or committed, to be a committed, devoted follower of Jesus Christ, to embrace the good news that, you know, Jesus literally died for our sins and that you and I can live in this amazing freedom. So what does it mean to live in order not to be drowned by the tides flowing in our particular culture? And it's taking people into destruction right now, and we're seeing it. First of all, it begins with the right attitude, both towards God and towards our former lifestyle. Now, one of the important elements that we often overlook in our current Christian context is the need for genuine repentance. We don't talk about that enough, but let me just point out something to us. You know that Greek word, metanome, means a change of mind, but I decided to pursue it a little bit more, and I was just looking in the Oxford English Dictionary, and it's interesting. This is a regular dictionary. This is what it said about this idea of repentance. Repentance is a summons to a personal, absolute, and an unconditional surrender to God as sovereign. How many think that's a very powerful statement? I mean, just think about that. I mean, real repentance does that mean we're making Christ Lord in our lives. We're recognizing his authority and sovereignty in our, in our lives. He becomes our king, you know, He's the one that's going to call the shots in our lives. Though it includes sorrow and regret, it is more than that. In repenting, one makes a complete change of direction towards God. As a matter of fact, it even said in there, a 180-degree turn. You know, 
It's a literally about face. It's, it's a change not only of our mind, but it's a change of our lifestyle. It's a change of how we, were, how we were living our lives. It's turning our backs on our former way of living and turning our life towards God and embracing a whole new life. That's repentance. How many think that's a pretty strong term? And, you know, you and I need to grasp the significance of that term because, you know, what we need to understand is that Jesus, John the Baptist and all the apostles, in their proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, they all preached repentance. Does everybody know that? And I would argue today that you cannot be saved apart from repentance. It's fundamentals. As a matter of fact, if you go to the book of Hebrews chapter 6, it gives you the six fundamentals of the doctrine of Christ, and the first one is repentance. It's the first step. You and I need to repent. We need to change our mind. We need to turn to Christ. And I don't think we ever fully appreciate what Christ has rescued us from until we end up struggling against it. You know, people in society who are not believers, you know, they act like they can stop sinning anytime they want to. Good luck. You know, I like what C.S. Lewis says, you don't know how strong sin is until you try to not do it. You know, you don't know how strong temptation is until you try to resist it. And then you find out how difficult it really is. How many have ever tried to miss a meal or two? You start fasting. How many go, oh, I could miss a meal or two? Oh, yeah, try it. Yeah, spend a few days without eating. Tell me how easy it is. You know, we could just go down a list and talk about a whole bunch of stuff, you know. But when you're, when you're struggling with an issue in your life, to stop doing something, it's very challenging and very difficult. Uh, I think we need to understand that we're struggling against three currents, really, the pressures of our culture that's the rebellion against God. We're also struggling with our own sinful tendencies within ourselves. You know, the Bible talks about our evil desires. We'll look at that in a moment. And then it talks about the demonic forces that are a a, a spiritual adversary that's coming against our soul. So we're battling on three fronts, and that's a lot. And we're going to need all the help we can get in order to succeed in that. Here in our text, Peter is challenging us to embrace the right attitude regarding the spiritual battle we're faced with. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Now, I don't know, as a new believer, I'm reading this verse and I'm going, I don't know about you, but this is a very confusing text of scripture. It almost seems like if I suffer, then I won't have problems with sin, you know? And yet when I read further in the Bible, I recognize there's other texts that suggest to me, even as a Christian, that I'll sin. And the Bible says, if we say we have not sinned, we're a liar. And as a matter of fact, it goes on to say in 1 John that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's written to Christians. So there's a recognition that even though I'm a Christian, I still sin. So what is he talking about here? Well, uh, I think it's interesting. Uh, I was reading someone I'd never read before. His name is Lancelot Andrews. Lancelot Andrews, uh, some of you probably heard of him. I had never heard of him. He was actually one of the primary translators of the King James Version in 1660. This guy knew 15 current languages and six ancient languages. I mean, he was brilliant. And in one of his sermons written in 1660, he says this, to cease from sin, I say, 
uh, understanding by sin, not from sin altogether, that is a higher perfection than this life will bear. In other words, he says it's impossible not to sin. But as John expounded himself in the very next word, or the apostle expounds in the very next words in Romans 6.13, that is the dominion of sin to cease. What he's talking about is to die to the dominion of sin, that by the grace of God we may and that we must account for. He's basically saying is that truly what needs to happen is we, when we suffer enough, we can actually be delivered from sin's power. We actually come to that deep recognition that sin is a powerful entity in our lives and that that power can actually be broken. That dominion can be broken in our life. Paul in chapter, uh, Romans chapter six talks about we're either a slave to God or we're a slave to sin. There's only two ways to live. And unfortunately, many times, even Christians get trapped by the power and dominion of sin and are in bondage, they're in addictions, they're in struggling with issues in their lives. And I wanna just make a declaration to you today. It is pow- it's, it's, it's very possible that if you and I cry out to God, that God could come and deliver us from sin's power in our life. That's, that's a reality. You know, he can deliver you from obsessive things. He can deliver you from addictions. And he's done that over and over and over again. So what Andrews is stating is not that we never sin, but that we don't have to live under the dominion of sin. Howard Marshall says, by suffering, Christ showed his opposition to sinful living. Karen Job suggests that this idea is of ceasing from sin as a result of unjust suffering. She's, you have to remember the context. Remember, it was talking about suffering wrongfully. And she says that, that those who suffer unjustly because of their faith in Christ have demonstrated that they're willing to be through or done with sin by choosing obedience, even if it means suffering. So this is what, it, what, she's, what, what it's actually being said, that you and I are saying, I'm so fed up with this that I'm gonna do the right thing even though I know it's difficult. Even though it may cost me something, I'm gonna quit doing or move away from this. So what does it mean to arm ourselves with the same attitude that Jesus had by being prepared to suffer? Howard Marshall says, the phrase arm yourselves brings out the force of the Greek which conveys the metaphor of going out to battle after putting on armor. You're arming yourself. If we put on or we adopt the same frame of mind as Jesus had, we'll find that we have protected ourselves against the attacks of temptation. It means that we're prepared to suffer rather than give in to temptation. In other words, we're seeing that the temptation is actually the battle and that we are arming ourselves. Now, you know, as soon as I start thinking of armor, immediately what happens in my mind is I start thinking of Paul's words. He says, first of all, as a Christian, you and I are called to be soldiers of Christ. Immediately we're called into the military. Now, most of us don't see Christian living as uh, 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 being in a, in a very difficult battle, but we need to. That's part of our problem. That's why we're struggling. That's why we get defeated so readily is because we don't see that we're engaged in an intense battle. This is a life and death struggle. It's not only for your soul, but it's for the souls of people around you. You know, I've thought a lot about it. You know, for me, 
to sin affects not just my life, it'll affect my family, it'll affect my church family, it'll affect my community. You know, it's a big deal. See, we, we have nullified in our minds, we, we've negated in our thinking how profound sin really is, but we're fighting a battle against it. We need to understand that. We're not our own. We're, in a sense, we're under the leadership of Christ. We're soldiers in the army. Paul, actually, the apostle goes on and points out that the real battle that we're engaged in is not against people. It's not against flesh and blood. There's a war that's going on. He's talking about putting on the full armor of God. You read that in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, put on the full armor of God. Think of it this way. Put on God's armor. We're to put on God's armor. Here's how you defeat sin in your life. Put on God's armor so that you can take your stand against Satan's or the devil's schemes or strategies. You know, he's got strategies to defeat you and me. We need to understand this is not simple little stuff, folks. This is a major deal. He's trying to take people out. He's trying to take out families. He's trying to take out communities. He's trying to destroy societies. Listen, if you study history, you'll start realizing how, how civilizations develop, and then eventually they hit a certain peak, and then you start to see the the moral demise in every civilization that's been destroyed. And it's all because of sin. When you really study it, that's, that's, the epi, that's, that's what happens. And we see it over and over again. He, he, uh, this battle that we have seen earlier is not just against our formal sinful nature that is ruled over us, but it's also against satanic strategies that are battling to tempt us, to lead us back into the bondage of sin. Peter now begins to instruct us how we should live as Christians. He describes two very different types of lifestyles, and we need to understand them. We now have to begin to live uh, for the will of God. Where once we live for our sinful natures, just desire, you know, gratifying them, we now have to live to do what pleases God, even if we suffer as a result of doing what's right. If you're doing what's right, how many know you're not going to be doing what's wrong? I mean, well, that's kind of an obvious thing, Pastor. No, I need to say that because, you know, you can't be doing wrong and right at the same time. You say, well, I'm doing the right thing, but if I'm going about it the wrong way, then it's still wrong. It's negating the right you're doing. It's either right or it's wrong. We now have a new purpose and a motivation for living. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 2 says, As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. So I'm sitting down here, I'm saying to myself, okay, there's only two choices. I'm either living to satisfy my, my sinful nature, or I'm living to do the will of God. I have one of two choices. It's, there's no other ground, folks. That's what I'm trying to explain to us today. There's one or the other. No wonder Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. See, that should be the cry of our soul. Lord, I want to do your will. Let me go back to Lancelot Andrews for a minute. You know, how do you live according to the will of God? This is his answer. And then we live according to him. When his will is our law, his word is our rule, his son's life is our example, his spirit 
rather than our own soul, the guide of our actions. We're walking in the Spirit. We're led by the Spirit of God. We're not leaning to our own understanding. We're trusting God with all of our heart. We're looking to the Word of God. You know, we're looking to the mind of God. We're trying to understand what God's teaching, and we're embracing that as the course in which we're walking in. Really practical stuff here. What, so what is he saying? Well, what's guiding and motivating our lives is now the life of God, as revealed to us both by God's word and by God's spirit, who's at work in our lives. The apostle Paul reflects the same challenge here as Peter, that we should transform our minds or arm our minds to experience a new way of thinking in order to lead to a new way of living. Paul in the book of Romans challenges us as believers to make a choice between two world views. I don't know if you, are you getting tired of me yet? I'm in Proverbs. I'm showing you there's a contrast. You're either wise or you're a fool. You're either walking in the spirit or you're walking in the flesh. You're either embracing the mind of God or you're embracing the mind of humanity or evil. You just can't be one or the other. He, and and he, he goes on here to say in the book of Romans, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You know what this tells me? I don't even own my own body. I don't own anything. I, it all belongs to God. Okay, then it goes on to say, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test to prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You know, how do I know God's will? It's in his word. That means I gotta spend time there. And as I spend more and more time in the word of God, something happens inside of me. My mind changes. I start thinking differently. I start thinking thoughts that are different than what I used to think. I start thinking so differently. It's a, it, you become really a different person. You start changing from the inside out. It's very powerful, you know? You know how many people today, they're walking around. I'll give you an example. You know, a lot of people today in our culture, you know, we feel sorry for ourselves. We're all stressed out. We're upset. We got pressures. We got this. We got that. Can I just point out to you, what, here's how my mind works right now. I'm going, why should God have done so much for me? Why was I born in a country that I had all of these amazing opportunities? Why wasn't I born in another country where there were military rulers and there was no freedom and you had guerrilla insurgencies and villages were wiped out and I'm now living in a refugee camp and I don't even know, I, I have nothing to look forward to and I have no idea what my future holds. Why am I allowed to live here and not in that context? Why is God so good to me? And then the next thought that comes to my mind is, and we're going to talk about it next week. You know, in light of what God's put into my life, what am I obligated to do? Why do you think God's blessed some of us? Do you think it's so that we can sit on our duff and sit down and say, hey, I'm going to do what I want with my life? Well, that's how the world thinks. That's certainly not how the mind of God works. You know, he says too much has been given, much is required. So we either embrace the value system of our society, which is at war with God, and we have a choice. Do we choose God's value system? Listen to what Peter said earlier in his letter. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. Why? Because they're waging war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us, which is when? That's the day of judgment. So you and I should be living such a life that even though we're going to be persecuted and ill-spoken of, that you and I are doing good things so that we're bringing glory to God, right? 
That's, that's what he's telling me. David Helm says, we do the will of God when we keep our conduct honorable by doing good deeds. This, of course, will require us to be countercultural. We're not going to fit in. If you're trying to fit in, sorry, don't sign up for Christianity 101. You're going to flunk, you know, because you're not going to fit in with the rest of the culture if you're going to embrace Christianity. That's what he's telling us. We'll always be swimming against the current of today's moral tide. We're to, we're to be known for doing good. We're to be do-gooders. Somebody says, hey, you're just a do-gooder. Say, thank you very much. That's my goal. <laughs> All right? And as we've seen in this letter, the supreme mark of goodness is our submission to difficult and ungodly people in authority. Well, that kind of knocks a lot of rebellion out of my system right there if I do what I'm being told to do. The third thing that reflects our devotion to God is that we stop living our lives addicted by sinful desires. We leave sinful desires behind and start living with a compelling new purpose. You know, I don't understand anybody says to me, my life is boring. How can it be boring if you're doing the will of God? What you're telling me is, I don't quite know what it is. Just try doing what God wants you to do. I can guarantee you it won't be boring for one minute. You'll either be getting in trouble with somebody or you'll be helping, other people will be happy with you and some people will be mad at you. I can guarantee you they won't be neutral. I've looked at the life of Jesus. How many know he hit a few buttons? People were either happy with him or mad at him. Okay? So if you, if you want to go under the radar, the life of Jesus is not an under-the-radar life. I'll just point that out to you. Listen to what Peter says. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans do, choosing to live, and then he has his vice list in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. That's just a, it's a sample list. What Peter is saying is that we no longer allow sin to dominate our lives, but we now surrender to God and we allow the work of the Spirit to transform us. Karen uh, Jobes writes about what was happening in the first century. She says this. This is where the Christians were hitting the Roman Empire, all right? And you're going to see some parallels to our time. She says this. The pleasures from which the Christians of the first century typically abstained, though not always, obviously because they were writing letters to tell them to abstain, were the popular forms of Roman entertainment, the theater with its risque performances, the chariot races, and the gladiatorial fights with their blood and gore. And by the way, some good Christians got addicted to the gladiatorial games. You know, if you ever read uh, Augustine's Confessions, one of his good friends, who was a very good Christian, started going to the gladiatorial games and got totally addicted to seeing people die. Isn't that amazing? You get addicted to that. Wow. Very interesting. Moving on. Christian lifestyle also condemned the pleasure of an indulgent temper, sex outside of marriage, drinking, slander, lying, covetousness, and theft. He's just making a list here. These attitudes towards contemporary Roman customs and morals combined with the Christian's refusal to burn incense to the emperor, which was a gesture of civic gratitude intended to assure the well-being of the empire, earned the Christians their reputations of being haters of humanity and traitors to the Roman way of life. Wow. Uh, anybody notice that uh, we're, we're be, be, being perceived as intolerant? Well, let me just go on and share a little bit more. I, I think there's a growing hostility, and the reason being that we're perceived as haters of humanity or intolerance, as she goes on to say this, few in a polytheistic first century cared if Christians wanted to worship Jesus. That didn't bother them. 
But it was highly offensive for the apostles to label other religions as idolatrous and inconsistent with the true worship of God. What, were, what was she, what she's saying? The moment you and I as Christians say there's only one way to God, we are now perceived as being intolerant. Can you see that? How many are catching on to the parallelism happening here? You know, in our pluralistic age of globalization, the issue of multicultural pluralism are creating an ethnos similar to that of the polytheism Peter faced. Everything spiritual seems acceptable except the exclusive claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the point? The point is simply this, that if you start talking about Jesus as the only way to the Father, which if you were here last Sunday, I think I made a strong argument for that, then you're going to be seen as intolerant of other religious viewpoints. And you're going to be seen as problematic in a culture that's embracing inclusivism. We're going to get in trouble. It's going to get worse. Are you prepared to suffer? That's what we're, I'm, I'm trying to explain to us. Now, it's interesting, he says, you know, we're not living like the pagans. You know that word pagans, there's ethne, and it, it just means a non-covenant person. The NIV is translating it pagans. You, some translations translate it Gentiles. It's, it's a person who's not in relationship to God. So there's only two types of people right now on the planet, as far as God is concerned, looking down. We're either in covenant with God or not. It's not that we're Jew or Gentile. See, you know, even these Gentiles were now considered, in a sense, a, a Jewish covenant person. The moment we come to Christ, we come into that relationship. And Paul also states that this is what's motivating people's actions. He, he again points out the two different ways. <clears throat> he says here, we're either doing the will of a non-covenant person or we're doing the will of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, As for you, you were dead, past tense, in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and those who are disobedient. So we recognize there is a... There is a conspiracy, and there is a power, and there is a spirit affecting people's lives today, and it's the spirit of Satan overshadowing the non-covenant person's realm. We need to know that. And then he goes on to say, all of us lived among them at one time. We're not any better. We were there. We were gratifying the cravings of our flesh or our sinful nature and followed its desires and thoughts, and like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Paul then goes, Peter goes on to describe certain behaviors. They're all vices. And they're all basically abuses of our human body. And Paul says it this way in Corinthians. He says, now flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Why is this a big deal? It's not like I'm trying to focus in on sexual sin, but I'm going to explain something to us. It's because, as he says, do you not know that your bodies are temple of the Holy Spirit? So what's going on, there's a battle for our lives. There's a battle for our minds. There's a battle for our soul. There's a battle for our body. Because when you and I become a covenant person with God, what does God do is he enters into this covenant and his spirit now comes and lives within us. You and I are, are actually instruments of the presence of God. We're bringing God's presence everywhere we go. You know, this power is living within us. We're just these little clay vessels bringing the presence of the living God to people. It's a very amazing thing. If you ever had a little epiphany about what, what's going on here is God's living in me. God's living inside of you. He says... You know, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Who is in you whom you've received from God? Therefore, you're not your own. We, we got to get 
we got to get it out of our heads that we control ourselves. No, we have a decision to make. We have to recognize that when I'm a covenant person with God, I belong to God. I don't belong to myself. Even my body doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. Then he goes on to say, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. Very strong. Let me move on to the second key to swimming against the tide. It's embracing the cost of the gospel. One of the aspects of embracing the good news of Jesus and experiencing his saving love is that we're prepared to be misunderstood and suffer. I'm bringing that up because I think we don't think about that. And a lot of times when we had the gospel presented to us, we were told, if you come to Jesus, everything's going to work out. Well, it's not quite that way. As a matter of fact, everything's going to work out in eternity. You know, you're going to be a lot better emotionally and mentally. I believe that. But you're going to also have tremendous battles coming against you never had before. There's going to be a spiritual realm that's going to be opened up to you, and you're going to have this conflict. And you're going to be at odds with the culture. That creates problems. There's going to be misunderstanding. We're going to be misunderstood and maligned, and that comes from unbelievers. Verse, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4 says, They are surprised that you do not join them in their recklessness while living, and therefore they heap abuse on you. <laughs> it, it, you know, people get hostile. You say, well, just because I'm not doing what they're doing, they get hostile. Yeah, especially when, you know, you were with people before doing it. Now you stop doing it. And, you know, if you're a brand new Christian, it gets really weird because you're, you're trying to tell your friends, hey, I just found something wonderful, and they look at you like you got two heads. You're a monster, you know. What happened to you, you know? They feel threatened. And Peter's explaining that we need to understand that all people are going to account for their lifestyle. This is where people really don't like to hear this stuff, but it's true. So we need to entrust ourselves in our suffering when we're suffering for the right reasons, for righteousness sake, to God as our judge and vindicator over all humanity. Here's what we, we need to understand. God is going to judge. It says... In verse 5, but they will have to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. You know, now, the living and the dead in this verse is actually speaking of, it's a mirrorism, it's speaking of those who are uh, saved and unsaved, basically. Now, the next verse, he's going to change the meaning of the word. That's why I need to say that. Our response to persecution is we have to entrust ourselves to God. Now, if you've been listening to my series on Peter here, I talked about a culture of blessing. You know, when Jesus was reviled, he didn't revile back. When Jesus was crucified, he forgave. Jesus blessed people. See, you and I need to develop an attitude of blessing, right? We need to speak well of other people. But yeah, but Pastor, aren't you pointing out there, there's two classes of people? I'm going, yeah, because God creates that, not me. And God also loves humanity and speaks blessing to all of humanity. As a matter of fact, he says he blesses the, the, the righteous and the unrighteous. He's blessing our planet all the time. We couldn't survive without God's blessing. But we need to understand something, that there's a judgment coming, and that God will judge the people who have mistreated us if they don't repent. God's going to deal with that stuff. Karen Job says, therefore the claim of verse 4-5 is that there's a judgment of God coming and that being dead does not excuse one from having to give an account for what one did before they died. You know, a lot of people, their attitude is, hey, you know, once you die, you're dead, you know? Now, how many, how many non-believers have told you that, you know, once you're dead, that's it? You know, you're just dust. You know, the worms get you and that's the end of you. That's the end of your existence. So you might as well live life to its fullest. 
And the Apostle Paul makes some very strong arguments for the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of human beings when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just read the whole chapter, but he says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, he says, and he's speaking of the resurrection, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if we're only serving God in this life, he said, that's not good enough. The whole chapter is arguing for something far more profound than that. As a matter of fact, the resurrection speaks of we're all going to be accountable for God. And, he's, and he brings out something very important that I think even non-believers need to hear. How many recognize that the principle of resurrection is seen every single day? in our own world. We see the principle of death and new life happening all the time. How many notice, you know, a seed falls into the ground and does what? It dies. And then what happens? It brings newness of life. There's a rebirth. And we recognize this over the seasonal thing happening all the time. And so we recognize as well that what was sown one way is gonna come back another way. And Paul's whole argument is that's the case. You and I are gonna get a new body. This is amazing, a resurrected body. So you know, as you're getting older and parts aren't quite working the way they used to, good news, you're gonna get replacement parts and it's not gonna take months to get it. <laughs> and it won't be a major surgery to change out the parts. You're gonna get a brand new body and it's gonna work perfectly. How many think, hey, I like that. That's, what we're, that's what, something to look forward to. But one of the purposes of preaching the gospel is in order to help humanity prepare for the judgment. You know, we've lost sight of this in the church. You know, I've already mentioned two things we don't like to talk about in the church. Number one is repentance. We hear, hardly hear about that. But how about judgment? It's a coming, folks. A judgment is a coming. And we're all gonna stand before God. Look what he says in verse six. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Okay, that's a very difficult text, but let me try to unpack it real quickly here. In 1 Peter 4, 6, Karen Job says, begins for this reason, that is for the reason that there's judgment coming, the gospel was preached to the dead, meaning those who are now dead, who heard the gospel while living. The whole point of evangelism is to prepare people for the day they must give an account of themselves to their judge. Physical death does not exempt those who reject the gospel in this life from judgment, nor does it render the gospel ineffective for those who commit themselves to it when they heard it in this life. What, what is she saying? She's saying real simple. Even if you don't believe in this, when you die, one day you're gonna stand before God as your judge. He's your creator and you're accountable to him. Number two, you and I who are living with this hope of the resurrection, we will not be disappointed. And God's gonna validate and vindicate and bless us in the future because we made the right decision. We're following God. Since judgment is coming, it's wisdom for us to live for God. Yes, even to suffer for doing what's right. It's folly to give way to sin and allow sin dominion over our lives as it destroys both our earthly life and all that God designed for us to become and for us to do. Because one day we'll give an account of our lives before God. I'm, I'm gonna just try to encourage you this way. God's game plan for your life, uh, let me talk to younger people first, because I think you need to get a hold of this. God has a bigger plan for you than you could ever imagine. And it's far more significant than you could ever consider. Not that you're gonna become a famous person on the planet, 
But I'm going to just say this, that your life could have so much more meaning. You know, I, I grieve when I hear of young people committing suicide, even when older people do it, but young people especially. There's so much potential here. And if we would only give up our lives and surrender it to God and allow God's will to be accomplished in and through our lives, it would transform us. You would find so much joy and hope and grace and blessing, and you would not only be living for yourself, you would be living to help so many other people around you. It's not just about us, folks. It's about what God wants to do in and through us for the sake of many other people. I find it very fascinating, and I'm just going to touch on this verse, but I'll come back to it next week. In verse 7, he says this. He says, the end of all things is near. What, what's he talking about? He's talking about judgment. He says, therefore, be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. Be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. Why is he saying that? You know what? We need to not be careless. We need to be, you know, aware of what's going on. What, what began in our text today is having the right attitude regarding temptation and sin in order to arm our minds to resist now concludes with this exhortation to be alert and sober-minded in order to have communion with God, in order to pray. So the question I want to close with is how are we living? Are we being pulled into the riptide? Are, are we in danger of drowning by the pull and strength of allowing sin to have dominion over us or to allow the values of our culture crushing in upon us and we don't have the, the fortitude and the moral courage to stand up against it. Because let me point out to you, and we were reminded in our prayer time, and I don't even have it in my notes, but this is so true. In Revelation 21.8, it says this. The people who will be excluded from the presence of God are those people who are unbelieving, but it also says are fearful and are cowardly. God is calling us to have moral courage. And you can only have that if God's spirit is living inside of you. You say, well, you know, my personal temperament, I don't believe I'm, I'm a courageous person, temperament-wise. But I'll tell you what, when the spirit of God is at work within me, it's amazing what happens. He changes what we lack in our natural temperament. How many think that's amazing? God can put stuff inside of us that wasn't there is what I'm trying to tell you. And so you may say, well, this is what I'm like, Pastor. I'm going, yeah, but you don't have to always be like that. God wants to rule and reign in our lives and change the broken places in our soul. He wants to heal them. He wants to transform us. He wants to move us from being fearful. You know, Heinz feet on high places. I don't know if you ever read that book. I love, it's, it's an allegory. And the person, it's a woman, and her name is Much Afraid. And one of the things that she has to discover is that she doesn't have to live in fear. How many think that might be important? You know, I think fear is a big problem today. And that's why people make a lot of bad decisions, because they're afraid. They make poor choices because they're afraid. Fear is a terrible motivator. How many know that perfect love casts out fear? What needs to fill our hearts today is the love of God. I'm going to have a stand as we close the service and prayer today. And just with every head bowed right now as we pray, I want to ask questions so that you and I can respond to the spirit of the living God. Maybe you're here today, and my question is simply this. Maybe there's areas in your life you're saying, you know, Pastor, I'm living in spiritual defeat. I already know that, you know. And, and, and let, me, let me just say this. God wants to change that. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God is greater than your sin. 
You need to know that right now. He wants to set you free. How many people here say, you know, Pastor, I battle. I battle in my emotions. I battle in my thoughts. I battle with areas in my life. I struggle with sin dominating my life. And that's you today. Just raise your hand. I want to pray right now for you. Be honest. You're struggling. It can be all kinds of addictions. It can be, you know, alcohol addiction. It can be drug addiction. It can be food addiction. It can be sexual addiction. We can just go down the list. Come on, guys. Let's be honest. If you want to fool around in the, in the riptide there, you know, sometimes we need Jesus, the lifeguard, to swim out to us and put us on the board and get us back to safety. That's what we're praying about today. God set us free. You know, how many here say, you know what, I can honestly say, Pastor, I'm being challenged right now. Spirit of God is speaking to you about living for the will of God. Because up until this point, it's about your will. But let me tell you how foolish that is. Bible says, don't lean to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Is that you today? God's speaking to you right now. He's saying, you know what? It's about you, not about me. But you know what? You want to make a commitment today. Say, you know, Lord, I, I know that you're real. I do believe in you. I believe you died for me, but I have to be honest. My pursuit in life is not about doing your will. That's not my goal. But from this day forward, I'm going to ask you to forgive me, and I want to make that my number one pursuit. And wherever that takes me, I will follow. And it's going to take you on a journey let me tell you something. I was so broken as a young person. I have no idea when I gave my life to Christ where it was going to take me. It took me into the ministry. It took me uh, all, all kinds of places. I've been, I've been in different places in the world. If you'd have told me I'd be preaching in India or some of these other countries, I'd go, you're crazy. You know, I, I couldn't see any of that. I had no idea what God had in mind. God has something in mind. And it doesn't have to be even that extravagant. You know, it could be, I'm impacting my family in a positive way. Can I just say to you right now, if I was not a Christian, I probably would not have a marriage. I probably would not have beautiful kids that are serving God. I wouldn't have great kids, grandkids right now that are, that are so amazing and they're loving Jesus. None of that would have happened. I'm going to tell you right now, it would not have happened. God is doing something, folks. But when you and I say, Lord, I give you my entire being, I give you my life, I'm just surrendering everything to you, something profound starts happening. Spirit of God starts working inside of you. And maybe that's you today. Just raise your hand and say, you know what? I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna make a consecration today. Consecration means I'm gonna, I'm gonna surrender my entire being and say, here's my life, God, my spirit, soul, and body. Whatever you have in store, whatever you wanna do, all I wanna do is your will. I'm just gonna pursue it with all my heart. And it's gonna lead you on a journey. You're gonna be a follower of Christ and you're gonna, you're gonna have experiences you would have not had. I'll make this a guarantee. You'll have experiences you'll never would have had if you had just continued to do what you thought was the right thing. Because God has a bigger plan than what you've got. And so, Father, I pray right now that the Spirit of the living God would come upon us, Lord. People that are hearing my voice, Lord. People that are struggling with areas in their life. There's addictions in their life. They're struggling with, with bondages in their life. I believe that the power of your grace, the power of your Spirit is far greater than those issues. And, Lord, as we make a surrender to you today, we're saying, Lord, not my will but yours be done. I'm not going to live for my, my sinful desires. I'm going to live for the will of God today. I'm going to choose you, Father. I'm going to choose your, 
your purposes. I'm going to choose your way. I'm going to choose your kingdom, Lord, over even my agenda, Father, because I believe that how you designed me, your purposes are far more exciting, more, more interesting, Father. And yes, more challenging. And yes, there will be suffering. And yes, there will be struggle at times. And yes, there is a price to pay. But it's worth it in the end, Father. It's still worth it. And I pray right now that you'll pour courage into our hearts. I pray that you will defeat the spirit of fear that's living in people's lives right now. I pray that your perfect love would cast out the fear that's hindering us from moving forward in your kingdom. Right now, Father, in the name of Jesus. I pray that you'd speak to those fears, Lord, and that we would rise up in moral courage and we'd be able to say no to sin and to Satan and to the, uh, the course of our culture. Lord, we could say no to those things and yet live by grace, live by love, live by hope, live by truth, live by your, your amazing spirit, Lord, living within us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.